0: special message for the occasion, probably one you've not focused on before. I'm not claiming originality at all, but uh, I'm going to talk about the seed of the woman from the first book and the third chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, I'll read verses 14 through 21. Good to have our Hispanic folks joining us by means of the headsets and I know they could understand that hallelujah. That didn't have to be translated at all, phrasing the Lord as we think of the incarnation of our Savior. My text verse will be verse 15, which we'll read in due course, and it really is a Christmas verse. Maybe you've never thought of it that way, but the first mention of the Messiah being the seed of the woman is is really a, a true Christmas verse. But we'll begin with verse 14, the verse right before that. And the Lord God said unto the serpent, because thou hast done this, because he tempted Adam and Eve, and they partook of the forbidden fruit, because thou hast done this, thou art cursed above all cattle, and above every beast of the field. Upon thy belly shalt thou go, and dust shalt thou eat all the days of thy life. And here's the familiar uh, proto-evangelium, the First mention of the gospel, "'And I will put enmity,' God said, "'to the serpent, between thee and the woman, "'and between thy seed and her seed. "'It shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. "'Unto the woman,' he said, "'I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception. "'In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, "'and thy desire shall be to thy husband, "'and he shall rule over thee. "'And unto Adam he said, "'Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife,' and hast eaten of the tree of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for thy sake. In sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee, and thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living, unto Adam also, and to his wife, did the Lord make coats of skins, and clothe them. So the first animals were sacrificed. We're very familiar, I'm sure most of us, with the details of that story. But may I just preface it by saying the true story of the birth of Jesus Christ is not all romance. It's not all ecstasy. It's not all euphoria. And I am not trying to be the Grinch that stole Christmas by any chance. But I like to deal with just not mere nostalgia at Christmas time. It's easy to get all sentimental about traditions, lights, music, And around our house, the smells that just tantalize you and taste, nothing wrong with that. It builds memories. It's wonderful. But I just want to tell you, when I preach, I want to grapple with some hard things and difficult truths, truths that will help you go through trials and overcome temptations. Because we're going to need that as we get into 2023 very soon, if the Lord tarries is coming, the Christmas story deals with some tough things. It deals with problems, scandals that didn't go away right away. In a very real sense, I don't know if you've thought about it this way, Mary and Joseph had to bear the reproach of Christ before he was even born. Pastor Joe Tierpack points out in a Christmas devotional that in a very, very real sense, God ruined Mary's life. We don't think about that. We just have the romantic idea about it all. Mary lost her reputation. Her fiancé rejected her for a time. She had to face ridicule and bear the stigma of being the virgin mother that she wasn't considered virgin it just she was considered being immoral for the rest of her life because when they came to Jesus and said with a sneer we be not born of fornication that stung Mary Have you thought about that What a stigma Nativity scenes and pictures don't tell the whole story folks They show a nice, rustic stable with clean, sweet-smelling white, or yellow hay, and cuddly white lambs. Again, I'm not trying to be the Grinch, and you'll see that in just a moment. But the Christmas story was not all peaches and cream. Much of it was pretty ugly. Jesus was born under very adverse circumstances in conditions that didn't improve right away. Oh yes, the stable or the cave, we don't know which it was, in which he was born, was shortly exchanged for a house because when the wise men came a couple of years later, they came to a house in Bethlehem. But then right after that, the royal family, if you want to call them that, had to flee to Egypt where they were refugees for a time. And refugees aren't treated all that royally. But God protected and God provided for His Son and the human cargo that went down into Egypt. No doubt it was the gold given by the Magi that was God's method for financing their sojourn there. Yes, Jesus came to His own and His own received Him not. It was not a rosy story. God's salvation for fallen humanity then as now involved the gospel being rejected. And until we accept the bad news of condemnation, we're not going to embrace the good news of salvation. The very first mention of the gospel of Christ in the Bible is really the first Christmas verse, the one we just read Genesis three fifteen. It's kind of abrupt. It's kind of unexpected. Adam and Eve had just fallen into sin because of the serpent's deception, and then God delivers this first sermon, if you want to call it that. He himself was the preacher. The primary audience was the devil. God was talking to the devil here, the serpent. And he is the one that is going to destroy the devil. The devil was given the initial promise and prophecy of a redemption from the very sin that he, the devil, had brought into God's perfect universe. The seed of the woman would ultimately crush his head. And we know when that happened on the cross of Calvary. It's a blessed study, and I hope you'll take the time to do it at this Christmas season. It's a blessed study to just trace this seed. When we say seed, we're talking about the progeny, the descendants, and especially the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why it's used in the singular sense, and the Holy Spirit makes such a deal about that through the Apostle Paul in Galatians. But the seed of the woman is revealed in due time as the seed of Abraham, as we... Look at Genesis 12 and Galatians 3, which in in turn becomes identified with the seed of David. Both Abraham and David were in the line of Christ. Again, it's singular seed, not seeds. That's a big deal as far as the Holy Spirit is concerned. It's the seed of the woman. This refers to the miraculous conception of Jesus Christ. We often talk about the virgin birth, the miracle involved was the virgin conception no man was involved. If you got here any other way, I'd like to find out how, because every one of us have a mother and a dad somewhere. Bible says, before Mary and Joseph came together, she was found with child of who? Of the Holy Ghost. So there was no sin nature transmitted, as the angel told Mary, that holy thing which would be born of her was the Son of God. Now there's some wonderful truths we can't spend forever here. We we want to go home and be with our families. But since we're not coming back tonight, let's make the most of it now, okay? What truths concerning Jesus in seed form here in Genesis 3.15 can we find that will Warm our hearts, inform our minds with this proto-evangelium, the first mention of the gospel. Let me give it to you again. I will put enmity, God said to the serpent, between thee and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed, it shall bruise thy head, and thou shalt bruise his heel. Verse 15. Let me give you three things. Number one, we have here a promise of eternal enmity between Satan and Christ a promise of eternal enmity between Satan and Christ. There's a war against womanhood in general. Jehovah, Yahweh, told Satan the serpent, I will put enmity between thee and the woman. Now what had brought about this current sad state of affairs, we could put it this way, the woman and and the serpent had gotten way too friendly. They had conversed together. Eve had believed the devil's slander against God and his insinuations against God. And as there is no honor among thieves, the friendship of sinners didn't last long here. Eve and the devil had already begun to quarrel. And God would see to it that that antipathy would be morphed, elevated into sworn enmity. We hear a lot about misogyny these days, Let me just tell you, Satan is history's greatest misogynist. He hates womanhood. And he hates motherhood in particular. The first pronouncement of judgment on Satan was that a prophecy that the seed of the woman would ultimately crush or bruise his head. That would be the ultimate humiliation of the devil. There are times in the history of the patriarchs and of Israel when it seemed that Satan was about to succeed in dis- destroying the seed uh, that pro- those who would uh, pr- become the seed of, 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 of the Messiah, those who would be his—not his descendants, but what, what am I trying to say—is four forefathers. Okay, I'll get it out in a minute. There are times that he almost succeeded in defiling the human race through the intermarriage of fallen angels. I don't know if you thought about that. The Bible talks about that in Genesis. These fallen angels came and intermarried with men. I believe that's what the sons of God means. They produced tyrants so wicked that God was provoked to send a worldwide flood. I don't want to have you turned there, but if you just put, jot down the reference Jude, verses 7, only one chapter in the book of Jude, Right? But the Bible speaks in verses 7 and 8 of the fallen angels who kept not their first estate, and they were of the same kind as those that God overthrew with a worldwide flood. It says, in like manner. That's not saying in like manner as far as the judgment is concerned. It's referring to like manner as far as the sin that was being judged was concerned. The sin of the Sodomites. Second Peter two verses four through eight speaks of a sin so egregious on the part of these angels that God cast them down to hell. This is a different word for hell. This is Tartarus. This is a section of sheol reserved for these evil angels bound in chains. They were so bad they kept not their first estate in heaven, they sought to corrupt all flesh on earth. They entered into this realm, our realm of humanity, by intermarriage. This was Satan trying his utmost to destroy the seed of the woman. Again, Satan almost succeeded in the time of Esther with what happened to the Jews or what was planned for the Jews. It happened in the time of wicked Queen Athaliah when she tried to destroy all the seed royal, but the high priest had hid the baby Joash, and he became king of Judah at age seven, and he was in the line of Christ we could go on and on with other instances. The hatred of and discrimination against women that exists to this day in many Muslim and pagan societies is evidence of Satan's ongoing war on womanhood and motherhood. This is more than just human depravity. There's a war against womanhood in general. There's a war against the seed of the woman in particular both before and after the birth of Jesus, the devil, who was the serpent here in Eden, tried to destroy him, tried to eradicate the seed, tried to kill the God-man before he could die an atoning death and triumph by being raised from the dead. Satan inspired wicked Herod the Great, didn't he? Who made that order that all boy babies two years of age and younger, in and around Bethlehem, should be massacred. God protected His Son. Satan tried to get Jesus in a weakened state to cast Himself down for the pinnacle of the temple, as we read in Matthew chapter 4. Satan filled the Jews with blind rage against their Messiah, so they tried to kill Him in His hometown, in Nazareth took Him out on the brow of the hill and tried to throw Him down. Then later they threw stones at him because he claimed to be God, and that was blasphemy in their book, and they tried to kill him then. But his hour had not yet come, and Jesus was not going to stop short of Calvary. And beloved, you can mark it down. Just as all the prophecies that had been given up to this point were fulfilled at Christ's first advent, the ones that remain will be fulfilled at his second advent. When the last soul is saved, completing the bride of Christ, when the cup of man's iniquity is filled, when all the scriptures are fulfilled, the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, and the seed of the woman will be revealed in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, overthrowing Antichrist and consuming him with the spirit of His mouth and with the brightness of His coming. Listen, folks that's going to happen. Hallelujah. I've read the back of the book. You know what, Jack, we win. Well, it's not just we win, Jesus wins. The problem is Satan hasn't conceded that yet. Some people have him consigned to hell already. No, he's not in hell yet. He's like a chicken with his head cut off. He's thrashing about, making a big mess. He knows his time is short. Bible says that he will, the deception of the devil in the end times will be so strong that if it were possible, I love that phrase, if it were possible, the very elect would be deceived. Thank God it's not possible. You know why? Because the true sheep of the shepherd, the great shepherd, the Lord Jesus, will not follow a stranger. So are you in Christ or are you already caving to the culture and you're going to be deceived big time? Secondly, we see an implicit prophecy of the virgin birth of Christ. This is the only reference in the Bible to her seed. It doesn't, say, doesn't use the possessive pronoun, but it's referring to the seed of the woman, the only place that does that. The word seed is used in many other places in reference to Christ, but without connecting him to womanhood. But once is enough, amen? If God says it one time, that's enough. There are many witnesses in the Bible to the virgin conception of Christ. I won't go into that. That's been mentioned already. No. For the sake of time, I'll just suffice it for what has been said. But how did these words in Genesis 3:15, directed to Satan, but spoken in Eve's hearing? How do you think they impacted her? What effect did it have on her? I don't think we have to exercise our imagination a whole lot. To arrive at that, first of all, just like with every other Jewish mother, she had the hope of being the mother of Messiah. It is clear that Eve did not yet understand the virgin part. She just knew that the only hope for triumph over the serpent was through her seed. And that's why she was overjoyed to give birth to the first baby in human history, Eve was. We read about it in chapter 4, verse 1 of the book of Genesis. It says, Adam knew, that means in an intimate, physical way, his wife and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Stop. That's a very significant wording there. Notice that Eve did not say, I have gotten a son from the Lord. But I've gotten a man from the Lord. That's an interesting play on words in the Hebrew. She literally said this, I have gotten a man, Yahweh, the tetragrammaton, the four consonants that are used to designate God, but there's no aspiration, no vows. Eve really believed that she was giving birth to the promised divine seed. Oh, how soon she was bitterly disappointed and undeceived when the first boy Born, the first human child turned out to be the murderer. But I think she was disillusioned with the, the name even before he became a murderer because Abel was the one he murdered, and Abel's name in the Hebrew is Hevel, which means, are you ready? Vanity. Isn't that interesting? Eve was already disillusioned. She was resigned to the fact that she was not going to be the mother of the Messiah. After she saw the true nature of Cain, Cain manifested his nature long before he slew his brother Abel. The Bible's amazing. The construction here is, in the Hebrew is so out of the ordinary that most Bible translations can't seem to bring themselves to render it literally. Martin Luther was not among them. In his German Bible, it reads in the German, I have the man, the Lord. That's what she thought. And that hope in the breast of Eve remained alive in the hearts of pious women among the Jews for over 4,000 years until, as Paul said to the Galatians, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son made of a woman made under the law to redeem them that were under the law second thing I want you to see is the redemption of womanhood. That was the significance here. It's hard for us to appreciate how far man fell in Eden, because the fallen state is all that we've ever known. We would be shocked if we had been able to talk with Adam the day he was created. We we, we can hardly conceive of how he he and Eve were created in righteousness and true holiness you have any idea how smart Adam must have been? It's a well known fact. We don't use 10% of our brains. But I think Adam was hitting on all his cylinders. To name all those animals and keep up with them, he had a perfect understanding of all sciences. That knowledge has been lost to posterity. The fall ruined not only Adam's innocence, but it ruined his, impaired his intellect. There was a curse pronounced upon the woman. She was going to have pain in childbirth. God said to her, I will greatly multiply or increase thy sorrow, and thy conception in sorrow shalt thou bring forth children. Guys, let's admit it, we are wimps when it comes to the threshold of pain. But every time a woman brings a child into the world, or in the case of my mother with me, brought multiple children at the same time, There's pain. There wasn't in the beginning. There wouldn't have been if it hadn't been for Eve's sin. Leading medical experts rank rank labor pain as second only to the suffering of some terminal cancer patients. The pain of childbirth. The association of childbirth with Eve, with womanhood. There's a passage that you hardly ever hear expounded. And I'm going to rush in where angels fear to tread this morning. I want you to turn to 1 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. 1 Timothy 2, 14 and 15. The Apostle Paul picks up this matter of uh, childbearing, and he refers to Eve. And he does it in the context of salvation. I could spend a whole message on this. I will not do that, but I'll throw something out that I hope will tantalize you, and you'll like the Berean Christians, and you'll study it out to see if what you heard was so. This is one of the most misunderstood and misinterpreted passages in the Bible. We are living in a day, and I want you to know this, and it needs to be said even on Christmas Day, we're living in a day when in evangelical circles there's been a move for so-called Christian feminism. Instead of the complementarian view egalitarianism is catching by fire. All kinds of attempts have been made to explain away this teaching in this passage and allow for women to teach and preach authoritatively in the local church where men are present. Maybe you don't realize it, but prominent evangelicals, I'm not just talking about obscure people, prominent evangelicals are saying that the reason Paul wrote this, he was writing it to and We're going to read it in a moment. He was really writing it for the Ephesian women, though it was addressed to Timothy. Timothy was a pastor where? At Ephesus. And Ephesus, as we learn from Acts chapter 19, is a place where they had that great temple to the goddess Artemis, or Diana. And because of the, this is what they say, this is the argument of these people that say this is not for us today. They said because the the worship of Diana was so prevalent, women had become too elevated in their status, and Paul was having to rein them in. But this is not meant for Christian women in general. Folks, that's what's catching storm out there. Don't fall for this. That's an obvious prejudice and caving to the culture. Please notice these verses, verses 12 through 15, 1 Timothy 2. But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. It doesn't mean absolute silence. Other passages of Scripture talk about women speaking in the church. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. That's significant. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing, if they continue in faith and charity, love and holiness with sobriety with self-control. What is Paul appealing to? I I can't go into detail. What is Paul appealing to in telling these Ephesian women to be in subjection in the church, be in silence? He's appealing to the creative order. For Adam was first formed, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam sinned, he's as culpable, if not more so than Eve. We'll say why in a moment. But he sinned with his eyes open. He knew exactly what he was doing. What should he have been doing? Man, please listen, I'm not bashing women today. This is mainly for you. You know what Adam should have been doing? He should have been out front leading and protecting his wife. When Satan, the serpent, took a beeline for Eve, he should have injected himself and said, wait, you deal with me. But he didn't. Satan went straight to the woman, and he questioned her about God. The woman was put in the position of defending the integrity of God. Adam should never allowed that. He should have been the first responder to Satan. To defend the truth. But he was AWOL. Adam put Eve in the position of having to step out of God's created order. So much more could be said. Maybe I will soon. The real rub is verse 15. I want to get off the subject. Notwithstanding, she shall be saved in childbearing. If they continue in faith and charity and holiness with sobriety or with self-control. This latter clause here, this last verse, is one that has puzzled interpreters, commentators for years. But what Paul is saying by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is for all women, all daughters of Eve. Here it is, women give evidence of being saved by obedience, submission to God, maintaining this creative order in this matter of childbearing. That's not to say that God intends for every woman to have children clear that he doesn't. There are some that he wants to remain single and devote themselves without distraction to the things of God. There are some women that were barren, noble women in the Bible that could not have children. God didn't always hearken to them and open their womb even after a period of barrenness. It's not God's will for every woman to have children, but it is God's will for her to maintain the creative order and be submissive and obedient to God and to her husband if she has one. This is not to say that every woman is to get married again. But what are the other evidences here? They're listed. Faith, love, holiness with self-control. Is that how you get saved? Because you love? Because you have holiness? No, that's the fruits and the evidence of being saved. This first, this passage is perplex so many that we don't even deal with it. The obvious implication here is that both Adam and Eve were saved. Amen? They placed their faith in the seed of the woman that would one day bruise the serpent's head. They demonstrated that, not only in the, the name that Eve gave her first son, though he turned out to be a terrible guy, but we see other evidences of their faith in in Christ. In chapter 3, verse 21, Adam and Eve accepted the sacrifice that God made to clothe them. The last verse we read in our text was, unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. No more fig leaves, representing their own efforts to cover their guilt, but by faith they received the divine provision God had made which involved the killing of innocent animals. First time blood had been shed. Adam and Eve were saved the same way you and I are saved, by faith in the shed blood of God's appointed substitute. And until and unless you have renounced your own efforts to get rid of guilt, and they are unlimited, the things the devil will put in your mind, until you get rid of your own efforts to get rid of guilt and accept the lamb of God as God's appointed substitute that was slain for you unless you are clothed in the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ you will stand naked and undone before God Finally we see in Genesis 3:15 in the seed of the woman an announcement of the Redeemer's ultimate victory glad I can end on a positive note today. This is not only a a, a prophecy, but it's a promise, this first mention of the gospel. It is a promise of life. It is a promise of victory. God told the serpent that he, that is Satan, would bruise the heel of the seed of the woman, but that, that seed would bruise his head. Now, which would you prefer, to have your head bruised or your heel? I've had Achilles heel. Anybody else had Achilles heel before? Yeah, okay, a few of you out there. That can hurt. doesn't go away right away. It's painful. But i tell you, I would rather have my heel hurting than my head crushed. I believe the Bible teaches that we should understand this promise on three levels, and then I'm done. First of all, we should understand it theologically as fulfilled in Christ's death, His resurrection, and His ascension on Palm Sunday, that we observe, of course, the week before Easter, but it actually happened five days before Jesus was crucified, or the time of the triumph, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. What did Jesus say on that occasion? Here's what he said, very interesting. Now is the judgment of this world. Now shall the prince of this world be cast out. He wasn't talking about himself. The prince of this world was Satan. The prince of this world was the serpent. And I'm here to tell you this morning, the death of Christ was the death of Satan. The resurrection of Christ took the stinger out of death for the child of God. Satan has no more than he can do. And now we can say with the Apostle Paul in that triumphant 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? When Jesus ascended on high, He led captivity captive. He liberated from Sheol, those imprisoned spirits there. He led them with Him to paradise. Their souls are not asleep. No, they're coming back with Him. And Jesus isn't bringing back a bunch of zombies. He's bringing back living, alert, alive saints who've gone on before. Oh, beloved, the truth, the implications, the effects of the seed of the woman crushing the serpent's head are so far-reaching, so wonderful. As Paul said in Romans 5, verse 20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, literally superabounded. Where the serpent bruised the heel, Jesus bruised the head. Where death ruled, life now reigns. And I don't care how low in sin you may have sunk, those who are hearing me today, by means of the live stream or here in person. I don't care how much light of truth you may have had and turned your back against. I don't care how many trusts you have betrayed. The grace of Christ eclipses all that. Christ's obedience triumphed over Adam's disobedience. theologically fulfilled, and the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. This truth is literally, literally fulfilled in the end time consignment of Satan to the lake of fire. Talking about reading the back of the book and, and Jesus wins, you can't sum it up any better than that with Revelation 20.10, which says, and the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where he will be tormented day and night forever. Please do not be deceived by the cartoonesque picture or conception of hell so many people have. Satan is not there yet. Wicked people like to caricature Satan. He is not there shoveling coal. He is still the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience, though he is a defeated foe. And as I said already, he's running around like a chicken with his head cut off. He's making a big mess and stirring up a big ruckus. He's still thrashing about. He's bluffing a lot of people. He knows his time is short. He's hell-bent on doing all that he can, all the damage he can, and he wants to drag you down to hell with him. But finally, this truth is experientially fulfilled in us as we reckon it to be true. God says to us, I will put enmity between thee and the serpent's seed. Oh, well, let's take it personally. Let's face it. Once we were at peace with the devil. We were no threat to it. We were his willing slaves. Jesus said, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts, the desires of the devil, your father ye will do. We were his pawns, we were his dupes, but now because of the grace of God manifested in salvation, sin's dominion has been broken. If it has not been broken in you, you have not been regenerated. I didn't say you would be sinless, but the cord that ties you to sin is broken. And once you've been born again, it can be said of you, as it was said of that woman that anointed Jesus' feet with her, the hairs of her head and with her tears, having been forgiven much, you will love much. You will love much. God says that to us. I've bruised the serpent's head for you. God says to us, the serpent's head is crushed for you. We are more than conquerors through him that loved Us, like Job in the Bible, when we were at our weakest, we still vanquish the devil. Do you realize what the devil was allowed to do in the book of Job? He could raise the wind. He could blow down a house. He could destroy a whole family. But we are more than conquerors over him through Christ. We can prevail with God because the serpent's head has been bruised for us. Let's take it to heart. Let's take it personally. Satan is a defeated foe. The serpent's head is fatally and finally crushed. It cannot be reconstructed. It happened on the cross when Jesus said, it is accomplished. It is finished. Do you realize at that moment Jesus was ruling from the place of death? Then he was put in the grave. He ruled from the grave. On the third day he rose again. He engineered every detail of his death and burial and resurrection. Even the spoken words of his persecutors were divinely scripted. Then he ascended to heaven where he rules from the throne. He is poised. And ready to descend to come again where he will rule down here with a rod of iron from Jerusalem. I'm telling you this morning all the powers of Godhead are on our side. As we fight in the all conquering name of the seed of the woman. That bruised Satan's head. Oh what a difference. The miraculous conception and birth of Jesus 2,000 years years ago has made for us. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the wonderful promise that you made in the dawn of human history. Thank you for fulfilling it in Jesus, your son. He indeed bruised Satan's heel. Oh, God, enable us to enter into that victory, even on this Christmas Day 2022. Would you save that soul that is nearest hell? Would you liberate that one who is enslaved to sin in the flesh? Would you give hope to that discouraged and defeated saint? Oh, this morning, let Christ be seen in His all-conquering glory and power. We'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.